This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, which invests in educators and lifts up the Kansas City region and is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. The president says another offensive thing, but our teachers say this time is different. Plus, teacher shortages and fights over school funding. A lot of states are dealing with the same education issues. Our teachers get a preview of 2018 from an education reporter who covers state houses across the country. Those stories plus stress. Turns out it actually changes your students' brains. Our teachers discuss what you can do about that. Plus, kids these days on this edition of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned journalist, and I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who are ready to talk, especially since they have a three-day weekend. So let's introduce them. Greg Brenner, what do you teach? Uh, I teach social studies at a charter high school. Elaine Jarden, what do you teach? Middle school math. And Bakari Uku, what do you do in education? Middle school vice principal. All three of them are educators at public schools or public charter schools in the Kansas City metro area. Well, let's get to it. More than a dozen states, including both Kansas and Missouri and No Wrong Answers Backyard, have already kicked off their 2018 legislative sessions. In terms of K-12 education policy, what happens in state houses is often much more important than what happens in Washington, D.C. So we wanted to talk about what 2018 may offer for state-level education policy, what trends and common themes across states are out there. And for that, we are inviting in a guest to join our teachers for this segment. Daryl Burnett is a reporter covering state education policy for Ed Week and writes for their State Ed Watch blog earlier this month. He published his preview to state education policy in 2018. Daryl, thanks for joining us on No Wrong Answers. Thanks for having me. Uh, Daryl, let's dive right into some issues you foresee being prominent in a number of states this year. And I'll highlight one specifically just because it's very important to a state that's close to us, Kansas, and that is school funding. It's one of the biggest issues for Kansas and a lot of other states. I should say Kansas is under a state Supreme Court mandated deadline to add more money, hundreds of millions of dollars more by some estimates this year. You note that an unusual number of states, seven in fact, last year created commissions to investigate how to better distribute state funds to schools. So why is school funding such an issue for so many different states in 2018? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, there's a lot of distrust between uh, state leaders and local district leaders um, as to how the money is being distributed. I think I wrote something last week about how many governors have set us, have um either commission studies are signed um, executive orders to crack down on um, school spending costs. Um, so I think one of the big twists that I anticipate this year, early next year, um, is um, I think that state legislatures, they have always felt that districts are not spending the money that they have been um, given for low-income students, um, for special education students properly. And so they're going to start basically mandating that uh, superintendents, district superintendents start spending money in a very specific way. And I think this is going to start, um, this is going to kick up a lot of dust around local and state control. And then the other thing that I would point out too, is that the Every Student Succeeds Act, there's a small, um, um, there's a small part of the law that requires breakout of school by school spending. So most people see per people spending by district. 
And uh, next year, the federal government is going to require that to be broken out by school. And so that is going to require districts to basically break out overhead costs, administrative costs versus school-level costs. And you'll start seeing a wide array between um, schools, such as um, schools that have teachers that have been there for a lot longer who cost more or have more special education services, et cetera. And that, I think, is going to cause a lot of challenges for school boards and superintendents as they kind of figure out exactly how to distribute money between schools. Greg Brenner, you have a question. Yeah, hi, Daryl. Um, I teach at a charter school on the Missouri side, and um, I've been there for 14 years. We've been fairly successful. We've been thriving and, and growing, whereas I've seen other charter schools in our area in the, in the same amount of time have been shuttered and are struggling and are not doing the, uh, the state admission of a charter, charter school. And I was wondering if you could speak to uh, what the outlook is for charter schools, given the, the frame or the, the question of uh, school choice. One of the things that I think is going to be interesting this year is that because this is an election year, um, Democrats have sort of seized on the fact that Betsy DeVos is a household name, and um, they are trying to go after a lot of moderate Republicans who are fearful of the prospect of charters or vouchers in their backyard. So Tennessee, which has been, I think I've heard a, I heard a district superintendent say, say me last week, like at one point in time we thought, Vouchers were just inevitable. It was just a matter of how it would look, and that's because the governor and the vast majority of the legislature, um, which is majority Republicans, have always supported vouchers. And this year, the Republicans backed off. Um, they said, we're not going to propose any voucher legislation whatsoever. And I think that is the result of um, charters and vouchers becoming, um, and Betsy DeVos becoming such a, um electrifying word. I mean, it's, you know, when you, it's something that, Parents tend to remember when they go to the polls. So this is Bakari. What conversations have you heard of around comparing school funding to incarceration funding? So I was reading a, a report from like 2014 from the Justice Policy Institute that said, on average, states spend about $150,000 on juvenile incarceration compared to about $10,500 on um, individual students. What type of conversations have you heard from, like, states around justifying those numbers and, and getting that to a more equitable standpoint? So I looked at, actually, last maybe two years ago, I looked at um, the makeup of education committees, and the vast majority of chairs were brand new, and the vast majority of chairs had were not educators. They, very few of them had any, any education experience. And most of whom I had talked to were saying, like, you know, this is a brand new area that I am dealing with. So um, I will say that the um, because the federal government has been making so many decisions around um, education accountability and so many decisions as to, like, how to distribute even state dollars, um, because a lot of that policy just trickles down, the conversation at the state level is um, it's very... Uh, <laughs> It's very amateur, I'll put it that way. I do think that uh, in the near future, as states are looking at ways to cut costs, I think uh, incarceration is something that a lot of states are, you know, starting to look at because of the fact that, you know, that causes all sorts of problems with crime, with recidivism, et cetera. Um, But, you know, as far as if they are comparing those costs to education spending, I'm not sure. And again, like you have to remember, too, it's sort of like at the federal level with military spending versus education spending. I mean, we spend about $600 mm-hmm. billion dollars on military versus $650 billion on education, but that's what Americans want. I mean, Americans are 
you know, scared of their next door neighbors and they want people, you know, they, they want a large police force. So this is just something that I think politicians are reacting to. So you've brought up a few times the impact of the politics behind all this, which is, of course, huge. So what do you think the midterm elections are going to do with the legislative sessions this year? Are there any things that you think will be surprising or are people going to be playing it safe? Some people have told me that politicians um, plan on playing it safe, but I think that there are a lot of things that are um, being tossed around right now. So um, legislatures and governors are going to be aggressive and um, changing how much they give to um how much they give to K-12. Um, but at the same time, like, I don't necessarily see very much innovation. And I think this is one of the critiques of um, states is they've gotten all this power. I mean, for years and years and years, they complain that we can't get innovative, we can't, you know, create plans, we can't um, create long-term goals for our schools because, you know, the federal government is in our backyard, et cetera. And so now they have all this power to do these things, and so many state officials are... Um, doing this, you know, the bare minimum. It's just an area that so many politicians, and this is part of the problem with the infrastructure of states, is that nobody really knows who's in charge. Nobody really knows exactly who's responsible, who's holding the baton at the end of the day, um, because they set up so many bureaucracies and set up so many people who are responsible for education policy that it's just kind of like this um, muddled um, muddled political arena here. So um, that's part of it's state strength and straight state's weakness. Uh, Daryl, muddled politics and amateurs in charge, you don't necessarily paint an encouraging picture for teachers looking at their, <laughs> looking at their states. But uh, are there any, any examples you have found as you've looked at different state houses um, of effective governance or something that has, in terms of education policy, been effective that a state has done that, that the teachers in that state have, um, if, if not been appreciative of it, have at least benefited from? Consistency is something that I think a lot of teachers are look, looking for. I mean, I think there's been a lot of sort of um, reform exhaustion in that, you know, you come down with a new policy and it's going to be gone next year because we have a new state state superintendent, a new commissioner, um, we have a new governor, et cetera. And so I think I would look to some of the states that have set reform agendas and stuck with them for a long period of time. So Kentucky, Massachusetts, their commissioner, um, Mitchell Chester, who recently passed away suddenly they um i think it was 1992 they came up with the massachusetts education reform act and they stuck with those goals for a very long period of time and i think teachers tend to appreciate that so that is something that i think teachers just look out for is just the stability of the people in charge well daryl burnett he's a reporter covering state education policy for ed Wiki. Uh, earlier this month, published his preview or guide to uh, state's 2018 legislative sessions and what education policy issues will be key in many states. Daryl, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Enjoy your, enjoy your rest of the day. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City's students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kaufman.org or on Twitter at KaufmanFDN. We've been here before, and sadly, I think we might be here again. President Donald Trump said something racist and offensive. This time, during a bipartisan meeting of lawmakers at the White House, you likely know the particulars by now. 
When presented with an immigration plan the lawmakers had hammered out, which included protections for immigrants from several countries, Mr. Trump reportedly said, and I'm quoting here, why are we having all these people from shithole countries come here, apparently referencing African nations, Haiti, and possibly El Salvador? There is some dispute about who he was actually referencing. Mr. Trump a day later tweeted out a denial that he said those words, though he admitted what he said was tough. He went on in a tweet, never said anything derogatory about Haitians, other than Haiti is obviously a very poor and troubled country. That's the end quote of his tweet. He pointedly did not reference what, if anything, he may have said about African or Central American countries. At least one Democratic and one Republican lawmaker in the meeting contradicted Mr. Trump's denials. Like the times this, is ha- this has happened before over the past two years, when then-candidate or now-President Trump has said or reported to have said something racist or offensive, teachers have found themselves thrust onto the front lines of our nation's divisive cultural clashes. American Federation of Teachers President Randy Weingarten said in a statement the day after Trump's comments were reported, This morning in classrooms across our country, America's teachers are dealing with the fallout. What happens in classrooms if children simply mimic or repeat the president's vulgar and vile comments or share their racist overtones? That's Randy Weingarten. Schools and school officials across the country tried to show solidarity with students who are either from or have family from the countries referenced in Mr. Trump's reported remarks. Well, to the teachers here today, Greg, Elaine, Bakari. I've, some of you, in fact, have, have talked about the things that President Trump has said in the past. Is this time any different? Does it feel any different or is it just more of the same? Yeah, raise your hand if you were shocked. Uh, because if, if you were, I mean, I, I, I applaud you for, for being shocked because I, have, I lost that uh, probably around the inauguration. Um, this is the guy that did call on the campaign trail called Mexicans murderers and rapists. This is the guy that... Um, disparaged um, people from Nigeria, and you can go on, you know, down the list of, of things that he said that has disparaged others. And so it's it's the same insult, um, just maybe said in in slightly more vulgar terms. So shocking, no, not not at all. And so like for my students, like it it barely came up because you know what? Honestly, we have more important things to to talk about and think about. What's going on, especially in terms of, of uh, DACA, since most of my students are, are Latino, um, and that's a big topic right now. They're more focused on that than what a little person says disparages. Uh, oh, and we and we should them. say that this this comment did actually kind of contribute to the scuttling mm-hmm. of a potential bipartisan immigration deal that would have included um, a, a DACA fix or a, a DACA. Uh, the future of that DACA program. I would also posit that this is not just some random comment from a little person. This is the president of the United States. And I mean, I think about my time visiting D.C. and I went to um, the state house, the Congress, congressional house, and I feel like there was like this video you watch and it's talking about um, e pluribus unum, that of many there is one. And like this notion that we are a, a country of immigrants. And so for Donald Trump to to specify certain immigrants as not worthy of coming to our country and to the point where where he says that they come from shithole countries. I think that that to me, as an educator at a school that has a high immigrant population, that really does affect me and it does affect the work that I do because then it, it makes it that much more difficult to really show our students that we value them and that we want you here and we're here for your your, your benefit if our president is saying otherwise. Did you, right. Did you, I mean, and Bakari said in... And so to Greg, but you all have students who who are recent immigrants or they come from they're either first or second generation 
Um, how do they feel right now? What are the, some of the things they're saying or have been saying even before this, of course? I think they really feel like outsiders and are expressing that feeling, which yeah, is if, not if, surprising. If they didn't feel like outsiders you know, at, before now, they feel you know, even more so than, than, they, than they did just a, just a little while ago. And, um, I mean, we know exactly what's, what's in his heart and what's in its mind, and it's vulgar trash. On some level, we're, you know, we're like, well, what are we supposed to do with that? You know, I'd, I'd almost rather not touch that. With, with you know, let's 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 focus on something we, we can do. Gosh darn it, for our kids, it's really cold outside. I'm much more concerned about keeping warm right now, since I don't have winter coats. You know, rather than talking about what the president said now, which is the same stuff he's been saying. I, I hear you, and I think that you there's definitely some validity to what you're saying. We want to make sure that we operate within our locus of control. I do not deny that. I think, however, if we simply ignore it and not hold him accountable for the foulness in which he continues to spew, it does our entire country a disservice. Because had any other country said those same things about America, which they would actually be very justified in saying, depending on how they um, posture their argument, it will be a complete uproar because we supposedly are the moral compass of the world, and yet our highest officer is saying such disparaging comments about our our citizens. These are people who live here and contribute successfully to America, and so I think that it is not okay. Yes, we can talk about how cold it is and getting our kids coats and 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 access to other issues to other things. However, it is a disservice if we do not engage in the larger conversation around how is it okay that the United States president is saying such disparaging disparaging comments about the very people that we serve. I will say, I mean, based on the conversation you all are having, it it does feel like this particular comment um, has not only hit a nerve, but it it seems like maybe this has has taken it a step further. I mean, we've had conversations in the past. I mean, even even Bakari, I mean, mean, I'm not going to quote you exactly, but there have been times where you have felt um, tired of having to talk about what Donald Trump said. (laughs) You're right. but this this seems at the table right now. This seems like something that that has gone even further, and, and I ha- definitely and think it has and has raised it up a level. I, th- I mean, I think this is just this is as as blatant of racist as I think he's gotten thus far beyond when he initially ran. Like candidate Trump is very different than President Trump because there was this assumption that President Trump would be able to turn it on, if you will, or turn it off, whichever way you want to look at it, and better represent this norm of what America is supposed to quote-unquote, stand for. Instead, he's done just the opposite, and he continues to play toward the supposed base of racist middle or rural America or the upper echelon of America who doesn't really care about minorities and and lower-class people. And so we thought that, and he's also articulated this himself, that he can unite. He's going to be a leader of all of America, not just his base, and yet he continues to play toward his quote-unquote base, which tends to be more racist, uneducated America. And when he says these type of statements, it just feels all the more that he's he just has no care in the world for all of America, and he's just playing to a certain base. And I think that this com- these type of comments, to me, it does push to the next the next layer, especially if his party is not holding him accountable that's, for yeah. that. That's yeah. what. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you mm-hmm. off, but Go that's exactly it. what bothered me. I mean, the comment was almost not shocking in some ways, right. but that people would support him and his denial was more troublesome to exactly. me than him because we we kind of know like you said we are, we know what to expect from him but that other people would come out and be like oh no he didn't say that like you must have misunderstood like that's gaslighting and that's concerning 
I mean, it's, it literally reminds me of those students in the beginning of the year who push your buttons to see how far you'll go mm-hmm. and to see what what their boundaries are. He's pushing the boundaries of the Republican Party to see how far can he actually go before they pull him yeah. aside and, and say, By January, you Stop. get shithole. And, and literally, <laughs> right. literally, and this is what has happened when you don't hold them accountable. So yeah, that, I, I almost yeah. want to ask Sarah Huckabee Sanders how she maintains oh, her yes, job I and know. her sanity without, uh, like, and turning herself She's into, like, fine. ethically, you know, twisted knot of a person I, that's hard I don't, I, I don't think it's a stretch for her personally. a different angle to this story that I, I don't know if it came up for you within the media there was a, a big conversation around you know should we actually say the term you know <laughs> Bakari doesn't want to be any part of that conversation um, did this come up at school did your students bring it up and did you or did you not feel a need to um, either censor yourself or, or quote unquote protect your students from what the president said Anytime we have to have a conversation about censoring what the president has said, that in of itself is troublesome, period. Yeah. Yeah. It's also like if a student were to say the same thing to another student about their country of origin. Would have more consequences than the president Right, yeah. I mean, we'd shut that down, but he's just doing his thing. I think I've mentioned in the the past how Trump is almost like a a really good example of what not to be like in in my classroom. And and, and he's seen as such a, a villain in the Latino community that... I, all I have to do is tell a kid, look, you don't want to be like, you know, th- stop acting like Trump. And then they'll I'm like, oh, man, man, sorry. Let's turn to some new research. Teachers who teach children who come from stressful home environments will not be surprised to learn that there is a well-established research-based link between childhood stress and cognitive functioning. But a new study published recently by the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences still holds some interesting and I would say new conclusions about what exact toll stress can take on young brains. Here's the study's title, Early Childhood Stress Exposure, Reward Pathways, and Adult Decision-Making. It was first published in November, and it shows children who suffer higher levels of stress when they are very young actually experience changes in how their brain functions as they grow older. Specifically, this study shows that individuals who experience higher stress have trouble with real-time decision-making and struggle to appropriately balance reward and loss when making decisions and ultimately end up making poorer decisions. So how is this measured in this study? Well, it's kind of interesting. This study took over 50 individuals from the same what they call community sample and followed them for a decade. Roughly half of them had experienced relatively high levels of stress, and the other roughly half of the group had experienced relatively low levels of stress when they were children. So here's what the research found for this experiment. The kids who had experienced higher than average levels of stress early in life, now 10 years later, had several difficulties with this gambling task. They made their choices more quickly, They also more often made choices that had a lower likelihood of winning. And they also had more difficulty adjusting their choices as the gambling task went on. That is, they appeared less able to learn from their past mistakes. So even if they lost a high percentage of their points on one badly placed bet, they still make a similar bet on a future round. Again, all this being done in comparison to the other group of kids that had experienced relatively low levels of stress when they were younger. Not to get too into the scientific weeds here, but the researchers linked these problems the high-stress group had with the gambling task to actual brain functioning and brain chemistry. fMRIs showed reduced activity in certain areas of the brain that go with processing potential rewards and losses. And the researchers said the results were predicated on levels of childhood stress exposure and not by current levels of life stress. The payoff here, researchers say, is kids who experience high levels of stress have trouble gauging potential rewards and losses as adults, which help explain patterns of poor decision-making for individuals who live or have lived in high-stress environments. And I look at the teachers at the table who oftentimes deal with kids who come from stressful home environments. And after all that scientific rigmarole, you probably are like, uh, no duh. <laughs> uh, so... 
do you see, how do you see stress, or we can call it trauma here as well, how do you see that affecting the actual cognitive functioning of your students in an academic environment, the decisions they're making? Wow, who wants to start this one? <laughs> right. right. I think what stood out for me is that the um, reduced capacity to learn from error. And so, like, this notion of I think about students that I serve, like, I have a really strong conversation with them, and, like, we map out what choices we should make going forward, and then the very next time they present it with a similar situation, they make the wrong choice. That wasn't what I thought we, we talked about. This. Yeah, right. We talked about and this. so the the frequency of that happening with the same student, I think, definitely implies. And I, I mean, definitely being more trauma sensitive, trained, and and uh, aware that we recognize that trauma definitely has uh, impact on brain capacity and, and brain development. And so I think for me, that's where I end up landing is that I recognize that. I always articulate in the sense that we just have to we have to reteach them and, and break these um, these poor habits. And that's what it becomes. Like these are habits. That these are these are the, these have been their defaults of operation for so long that one conversation is not going to change that. And it just takes a few more conversations before they really start to understand what types of options they have in front of them. But it also makes it hard as an educator is holding them accountable to that as well and saying, you know, yeah, I understand that things are really tough, that you might have had some issues going on, but you need to do this in order to get your grade. Um, and, and I'm sorry, I'm here to help out, um, but this is this is what it is. That that makes it really tough, figuring out how to help those kids. Uh, then what, what successful interventions have either you done or your school has done to to intervene with students who, who you know are experiencing a lot of stress and, and a lot of trauma? What's been successful? For us, we do after-school tutoring um, and usually try to target uh, particular groups of students that um, that need the help in, in maybe specific ways. Um, also, maybe just even behavior intervention, intervention teams using like the BIST model, uh, identifying those kids that, that, are, in, that are in trouble. Um, and again, one of the strengths of being a smaller school, we can't do that. We have a lot, we have a lot more capacity for having multiple staff members on one student. Our school um, has a chill-out room, and so some students have access to that at any point during the day if they need a chance to just kind of go and sit. It's really a low sensory spot. Um, And then also, just as a building, we're teaching more mindfulness for all kids, which I think is very helpful to kind of get ahead of some of this. And then the third thing we're also doing now is teaching lessons about some of those academic habits. So, you know, like, how do you keep yourself organized? How do you handle conflict with someone? So we're trying to be more proactive instead of reactive. And what does is, what is, what is mindfulness training look like for middle school? Um, a lot of it is just getting kids to focus on their breathing. You know, it sounds yeah. really like, woo-woo, kids would never buy into that. Um, but we call it time in, and so kids will spend, you know, maybe just 20 seconds. There are lots of gifts out there that have shapes, you know, that expand and huh. contract. And so you'll just say like, hey, take a look at the smart board and just breathe in time with the image. And so kids will sit and kind of just breathe and go. And that's how you'll start class. I would also add that um, I think mentorship is a significant mm-hmm. uh, intervention because it's, it's one thing to hear from your teacher and it's one thing to hear from your parents, but it's another thing to hear from someone else um, who you have a different type of connection to that may not be academically driven necessarily. And so we've definitely leveraged interventions. We've also added in classes what we call SNAP, students needing more practice, which is basically tutoring within the day where it's, again, you're getting another opportunity to understand and make better choices and, and make stronger connections. I think we also use um, 
PBIS model, which mm-hmm. is similar to BIS, where we offer like these pre-corrections. So you know what the expectation is, and we tell you what choices to make before you have opportunity to make your choices on your own. And so I think those type of things help students be able to have more of a stable environment, but also be able to be pre- uh, to predict what the next move should be. And so I think those are definitely effective in interventions that we have at play in my school. That's so critical. I think we also have to be mindful about the kind of stress that we are putting on kids because we are responsible for some of that. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I think about the last, what was it, two weeks of the fall semester, students in eighth grade had five high stakes tests within six days. I mean, that's something we did to them. And that's not, I mean, if we're seeing the research that that's harmful, I think that's a really compelling reason to say maybe we should reevaluate how we're doing this. And I don't think my district is alone in that at all. Right. Stay tuned. We're going to do Kids These Days After the Credits. This episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control. And what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you find us, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Greg, what are the kids into these days? So I hope this hasn't been said yet, but um, I just caught on to this in the last few months, how, how kids will, will say, you know, they're bringing the W or the, or I'm just going to take an L, which is, stands <laughs> for wins or losses, you know? And so like, now it's translating to the academic side, you know, it used to be when with soccer, yeah, we're going to get that W. Now it's like, you know, if they're about to fail a test, it's like, I'll just take the L. It's all right. I'll just, I'll just take mm-hmm. the L. That's it. Um, that does sound familiar. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Greg, you are behind. Sorry. Catch up. <laughs> a little, you were on paternity behind. leave. There you go. Right. See, I was I was <laughs> gone for a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah. I've had yeah, other things. That's right. Luann Fox. I remember that. She she brought that in one day. Uh, Elaine, what are your kids into? The kids are into Donut Day. Are, well, who isn't into Donut I Day? I know. They're very into it. It's become an actual thing at our school where they're serving donuts. for. I have a lot of thoughts about that. But they're serving donuts for breakfast more frequently now. And so anytime it's Donut Day, it's a party. Like in the actual cafeteria, this isn't like a club or something. Oh, no. Like, this is like, like the school the provided. Wow. No, it's it's not even them selling it, really. It's like you get yes, the, breakfast the, from the school. The this breakfast. is what you are eating. Wow. And the kids are just <laughs> ecstatic on Donut Day. Well, yeah. Who yeah. can blame them? Donut Day. We'll get into your thoughts in another episode. <laughs> Bakari, what are your kids into? So I recently learned that they're into this app. It's an iPhone-only app. It's called Monkey. And it's actually very similar to Chat Roulette. And basically, you download the app and you can chat with people. It's like FaceTime Roulette. You can chat with people from across the globe. You basically select, do you want to talk to a male or a female? And it connects you with random people. You can build a friends list from it and everything. And so my kids have really been into this. Apparently, they've been... This, According to several of my kids, they've been into this for the last year, but I just became aware of it. <laughs> um, and so they're talking to people across the globe. This sounds Dude. fun and also dangerous. Dangerous, <laughs> ex- extremely so. So, Kyle, I, I do have one because it was oh, brought okay. up to me on, on all right, Friday. All right, all right, come back. And, and well, because I read this, I'm like, this can't be, this can't be real. It, it, have you heard about the uh, the Tide Pod Challenge? Yes, yes. yes. Worst not. idea says, ever. Right? Yeah. What is it? So, so you have you have those those uh, Tide laundry detergent mm-hmm. pods, right? The it the I guess the challenge is to put it in your mouth. No. 
Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And so, like, and it will dissolve. It, I mean, it, it, will, it dissolve. will dissolve and open up. Right. Yeah. Right. In, in water. Right. Yeah. And and so and, and I thought that can't be real. And then my kids actually brought it up the other day. I'm like, that's the most stupidest. They're not thing. doing it, are they? No, not that I know of, but Lord knows. You know, and they, I thought they're I, watching it on YouTube, exactly. of course. Yeah. And yeah. I thought sure. I thought the cinnamon challenge was bad. This mm. is uh, this is even worse. So what is the challenge? Just to keep it in your mouth as long as possible? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ugh. Kids these days. <laughs> oh, thanks to our teachers this week: Greg Brenner, Elaine Jarden, Bakari Ukuu. Thanks as always to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR eighty nine three Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. Remember, kids, be nice to your teachers. <laughs> <laughs>